touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Volkbaum. And today we're going to talk about uh, Arc... Archie, Archie Logie. Oh come on! You've seen you've seen Indiana Jones. You know what archaeology is. Oh yeah, that's X marks the spot. Yeah. Okay. I think that's pirates. That well, uh, well. X, okay, never mind. Last Let's Crusade. Go. Last sure. Crusade. I okay. remember it now. Um. So yeah, archaeology, of course, and uh, we're gonna be talking about uh, not just the the technology used in archaeology. We're going to talk a little bit about an overview of what it is and how it evolved over time, because that's kind of hand in hand with what is going on now in the field of archaeology, right? The the technology being used today is some really advanced stuff, but for a long time, that was not the case, because archaeology is actually a fairly young field. So I guess first we should Explain what it is, I suppose. Uh, sure. Yes. It's, it's the study of human activity um, in the past. In the past. Yeah. Not now. Right. So essentially it's, it's related to history. It's related to anthropology. Uh, it's got some similarities with other disciplines, but this is mainly all about studying what human life was like in the past based mostly on the stuff that p- our ancestors left behind. Well, you know, kind of necessarily because what they didn't leave behind, we have very little record of. Yeah, exactly. They don't, we can't study what wasn't left behind. That's actually very true. Not profound, but true. Um, um, but yeah, so so it's a crossover with a lot of other disciplines and lots of other scientists will kind of work hand in hand with archaeologists to to promote research for, for both of their fields. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's interdisciplinary. So you can have people from multiple disciplines and expertises coming in on a, on a single project for multiple reasons, uh, including people who might not technically be considered scientists mm-hmm. by everyone, like uh, historians or um, or artists. Well, right. Yeah. You've got you've got a lot of uh, art historians and, and other types of historians as well. In fact, archaeology as a discipline kind of straddles the line between science and uh, and a humanity. Uh, and it's sort of because. The techniques have been evolving over time as well. We're getting to a point now where there, some archaeologists are using some very high-tech, sophisticated techniques, whereas in the past it was a lot more, well, Indiana Jones-ish in the sense that you were getting down and dirty with it, although you were well, rarely chased by a giant rolling ball or uh, you know things of that nature. That, that we've heard of personally. I mean, I'm right. sure that someone out there... Well, I, actually, I'm not sure about that yeah. at all. I take We're, that back entirely. Yeah, maybe if they were lost in a giant game of mousetrap. Right. You know, that's <laughs> that's about as close as we can get. Um, but OK, so so the thing is, is that Indiana Jones was a terrible archaeologist, but it's not his fault. He did not have access to all of the tools that we have today. As dashing as he was and as good as he was with a whip, which sounds weird when I say it out loud, um, <laughs> that he, you know, it's it's not his fault. Although a lot of the things that, you know, that we kind of see him doing in, in those films are things that archaeologists archaeologists have done and still do today. Yeah, especially the predecessors of uh, of today's archaeologists. Well, they, I mean, you know, there, there's still a certain amount of digging um, sure. and brushing a little gently of things. A that little bit do. less. Uh, there are fewer examples of um, unauthorized tomb raiding in yes. in established archaeology, which is really when you get down to it, what Indiana Jones was doing. Like if you watch that first movie where he's trying to get the idol and he's being chased off by the indigenous people 
of that jungle that he's in, it's pretty clear he did not have full permission to go in there. Well, and, and the entire kind of terrible notion of like it, this belongs in a museum um, as opposed to with the people who created it. Yeah. Is a little bit weird. But um but but that's actually stealing stuff from ancient cultures is how archaeology began. Wow. Well, I mean, shouldn't be a surprise. You could argue that chemistry kind of started off with people trying to figure out how to make worthless stuff into very valuable stuff. Okay, so so archaeology really originated in Europe or circa the 1400s. This okay. is when wealthy Renaissance collectors started acquiring antiquities from from Greece and Rome as art rather than artifacts. They weren't really interested in the history of these items. They were like, this is pretty. I want it in my house. Yeah. This, um, this is very typical of the Renaissance. I mean, Renaissance, of course, the whole rebirth, it was mostly about how Europe kind of rediscovered this amazing civilization that existed uh, a thousand years earlier. But for between the time of the fall of Rome and uh, and the Renaissance, there was a whole lot of we're going to just concentrate on not getting killed by all those other people out there. And this is to the point where they're finally saying, hey, look, we're smart. But there were smart people a long time ago, too. And yeah. I like their stuff. And let's stop burning books. Let's <laughs> read them instead. Crazy. Um, and, and so some of these wealthy collectors even even wrote really expansive travelogues and guides to ruins to, you know, tell their fellow rich people how to go grave rob. Right. So again, it still was not a way of documenting something in the, for a historical record. It was more of, guys, I found the best antique mall. Uh, you just have to break in there and take whatever you want. And it's all old and awesome. Yeah. And eventually even bigger patrons of, of the arts as, as much as they were got interested in this and drove really large excavations, um, like the initial digs at Pompeii, mm-hmm. um, which was both victimized and preserved by uh, Vesuvius's explosion yeah. in what, like circa like 79 CE. Um, I've been there, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating place. Absolutely. Um, and you can see where things have been perfectly preserved after there were excavations uh, where things had been buried with ash and things of that nature. And it is amazing. Well, those early excavations were due to basically the Queen of Naples saying, I want some statues. Yeah. Go get some from that place. And I hear that uh, the famous, not actually short Napoleon Bonaparte was interested in this kind of thing, too. He was of average height for his time. In fact, not just at, for his time. I think he was like five foot seven or five foot eight. So yeah, it was, was actually five, six or five, seven. Yeah. yeah so, so, so a little bit short for now, but. Totally average for the time. It, it, it's a whole inconsistency in uh, in English. It's propaganda. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's uh, <laughs> that's another podcast and stuff you missed in history class. I'm sure has covered it. But at any rate, right? Uh, no. So when he invaded Egypt in 1798, he brought a group of 175 scholars that were calling themselves the Institute of Egypt, um, and, and they came with like a traveling library, scientific tools, measuring instruments. And uh, they published this huge illustrated tome called Description of Egypt. I'm assuming the title was originally in French. <laughs> um, but uh, and, and that helped launch kind of the first wave of Egypt mania in the in the West. And we're starting to see here actual scholarly work being applied to this as opposed to just I like this. I like the stuff that these people made. Get it for me. So now we're starting to see this develop, at least informally, into more of a scholarly discipline as opposed to to tomb robbing. Uh, Right. Meanwhile, lots of other scholarly disciplines were advancing. Geology and biology were both coming into their own. Um, Charles Lyell 
really helped spread um, this this modern geologic system of uniformitarian stratigraphy. Um, and this gave archaeologists a, a kind of time scale on which to date items based on sediment. Mm-hmm. And that, along with Charles Darwin's origin of the species, um, popularized evolution and and allowed prehistoric archaeology to, to actually become a thing where people could actually look for uh, for examples of prehistoric civilizations by the stuff they left behind. And because of this, other, these other disciplines, they could start to at least give a range of dates for when those civilizations may have been active. Now, in these early days, that range was not very precise, right? You, you could, oh, absolutely you could, not. Like when you're talking about geologic ages, obviously mankind has only been around for a very tiny fraction of a geologic age. So your, your precision is Pretty touch and go, but it could still at least give some indication as to how old any particular finding would be. And that was sort of the footholds of modern archaeology. Yeah. And and we'll get a little bit into some of those some of those geologic methods in just a minute. Sure. But um, uh, meanwhile, I, I think that the real founding of archaeology as a science was when Flinders Petrie published uh, Methods and Aims in Archaeology in 1904. And that described a, a systematic method for excavation. That was that was the basis. I mean, it's kind of sort of a little bit still the basis of how people go about uh, go about a dig right. and making sure that everything is well documented and laid out in a way that you can take enough notes and gather enough data. Because, OK, archaeology is a destructive science necessarily sure. mm-hmm. as you're taking apart a site. You are you are taking it apart. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be the way that it was ever again. It's it's the same thing for for crime scene forensics. You know, right? It's in in the investigation of where everything was and how it is laid out. You have to move it around. Right. So you have to you have to take a lot of really exhaustive initial uh, measurements without without disturbing as much as you possibly can, and then you progressively get more and more involved. Uh, that's why those notes are so important, because three or four steps down the line it is not going to resemble what it did when you first got there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the United States, uh, again, early in the 1900s, realized this and passed the Ant- Antiquities Act, which prohibits the excavation or destruction of archaeological materials on any kind of government land. And I, I think that that's the point at which we have like legal documentation that archaeology was a science. Yeah. So this is they're saying there are people who will be. Uh, certified and ratified and allowed to do this sort of stuff. Everyone else, keep your grubby mitts off it. Right. right That's right. essentially the message. <laughs> and then just a little bit further on in the 1900s, uh, archaeology became really popularized through some huge discoveries like King Tut's tomb, um, the Sumerian royal tombs at Ur. You know, these were huge newspaper headline inducing kind of digs. and And that's kind of where we get the sort of pulp novels that led to Indiana Jones. Right, exactly. This this kind of led to this sort of exotic, you know, uh, uh, the the heroic explorer who is uncovering, uh, uh, you know, history itself and, and discovering stuff that was long thought to have been gone forever. And that that's a very romanticized version of what an archaeologist really does. I think any archaeologist who has done a lot of field work would be like, I, look, I obviously love what I do and I am passionate about it. However, most of the time I'm not running around fighting bad guys for uh, access to 
precious historical artifacts. There's very few saving hot babes involved. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine. Probably not as much whipping. At least I... not. Prof- mm. I'm going <laughs> to leave the rest of that alone. So at any rate. Um, at any rate. Uh, do, do we have time for a side yes, note let's, about let's, Nazis? I, we have to talk about this. OK. OK. So speaking of Indiana Jones, the Nazis totally had a thing for archaeology. I so, mean, this is a super legit story. I mean, Indiana Jones is not a super legit story, but but, um, but, it, but the but concept the, behind it. Yeah. The idea that Indiana Jones was competing against Nazis to get access to certain things has a basis in historical fact. Yes. Um, Chuck wrote a really good, uh, Ch- Chuck, of course, of Stuff You Should Know. Yeah, it's a little show you might have Yeah, you, you might you might have listened to it once or twice. Yeah. Uh, has a great article on How Stuff Works called What Did the Nazis Have to Do with Archaeology? And, uh, and, and plumbed directly from that. So part of Hitler's entire plan, um, you know, as of his swearing in in 1933, was aligning the curriculum of German universities with the interests of the Nazi party. Which we kind of touched on in our Heisenberg episode where we talked about physics. Yeah, yeah. Um, And this was including the idea that the Germanic people were descendants of this original Aryan master race. Right. So he sent teams of archaeologists to excavate sites around the world that he believed would help back up this theory. So in, in other words, he's searching for evidence to prove the philosophy that he was he was writing at the time. Yes, uh, it failed. Yeah, a lot, basically. Um, I mean, and, and they put they put a huge budget into this. Uh, uh, Himmler himself yeah. uh, led a group called the um, Ancestral Heritage Research and Teaching Society that went everywhere looking for this history. Um, They also, you know, dug up part of Poland, hoping to prove that the Germans had lived there first and had legit claim to the land after, you know, after they invaded in 1940. Again, trying to search for evidence to justify their actions. Right. So uh, not a not a bright chapter in human history, obviously. No. But another example of how archaeology was becoming a really important field of study. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of the tools that are important for archaeologists, things that uh, that they rely on. And we should go ahead and say, I, maybe I should have said this earlier, this is going to be a two-part episode. This first part, we're looking at some of the basic tools and just the basic uh, philosophies that guide archaeology. And in, um, in our next episode, we're going to dive into more detail about some of the more high-tech tools that have become more available uh, recently. Mm-hmm. We'll get a little bit into some of the high-tech sort of science that has, that, that, from mid-century has started to to really develop how we can evaluate archaeological digs. Right. So starting with the hand tools, the basic hand tools. Now, keep in mind, archaeology is something where often we're looking for evidence that has been at least partially, if not entirely, covered up by soil and rocks and uh, often sand, like when we're talking about the uh, the Egyptian Digs. They are usually it's things that after hundreds of years have been covered up by by sand. So a lot of the tools are basic hand tools meant to remove that kind of stuff. Like you don't want to get too many big heavy pieces of equipment, right? Right, because you could just inadvertently damage Obliterate. the very stuff that you're looking mm-hmm. for. Sure. So, but you do get some stuff that is pretty heavy duty for hand tools. I mean, it's not all like a very light brush where you can gently brush the dirt away, right? Well, that's by the time you get down to something that you that you suspect might be an artifact, you're going to use a right. very gentle brush. But until then, it's, it's time to put your back into it. Mm-hmm. So uh, You've got some pickaxes, some shovels. Shovels, hoes. Uh, yeah, mattocks. Mattocks are tools that are used to break up hard ground. So any of my uh, fellow 
farmer folk out there. I say fellow farmer folk because as a kid, I used to have to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, I've got um, no idea what that thing is. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a hand tool. You use it to break up hard ground. It's, you know, it's, if, if the shovel is not going to do it because <laughs> the ground's too hard, you bring in a mattock and you break it up and then you use the shovel. Mm-hmm. It, it just means making more work for yourself down the line. Of course, you know, you have to have something to move that stuff, all the, all the spoil away. Right. So, so uh, buckets and wheelbarrows. Yeah. Yeah. Getting, I mean, we're talking about Lots of physical labor here. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, you might get down to a point where you're using something along the lines of a trowel instead of a shovel because you want to be a little more precise. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you're starting to see what could be the outline of perhaps like a wall of a settlement. Uh, sure. Or even maybe encounter uh, fragments of pottery or something like that that you want to kind of scoop up and preserve. Sure. And uh, of course, we'll talk about it more in the second half of this episode. You want to be really careful about what kind of contact you make with this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, some of the processes that you can use to identify or, or to date these objects can be um, thrown off by by human touch. Yeah, we, you could actually corrupt your own data just by picking something up. So it's really important to try and maintain that distance. Uh, on top of that, of course, you do have the brushes to brush away extra dirt, other things that you might use to get some dirt and and, and uh, sediment off of an artifact include dental tools. So you can uh, use these little you know, like, like dental picks mm-hmm. to get to get dirt out of grooves and things like that. Uh, so, so, you know, a lot of the reason why these early tools were very general purpose or were repurposed from other disciplines was because, again, archaeology was a young science. And so. Not a lot of work had been had gone into developing tools specifically for archaeology early on. They were essentially using whatever else would do the job they needed done mm-hmm. and repurposing it. And, and and I mean, that still happens. I've heard about people using, you know, like pen knives and chopsticks in the field, yeah. whatever happens to be lying around. It, it tends to be one of those things where, you know, there are tools out there that do the job really well. So there's not a whole lot of demand to start developing things specifically for archaeology doesn't mean that there aren't companies that do it. There are. Oh, of course. But, you know, if you're like, well, this is a a relatively inexpensive tool I can get that will do what I need it to do. Let's go with that. Uh, On top of that, you have things, you know, like uh, basic tools like line levels and plumb bobs, which you use to try and make sure that if you're using other types of equipment that require level ground, that you're, you've got that straight. Mm-hmm. We've and got also, one of those that we'll talk about in the second episode. I'm so excited. Also for, for surveying purposes, yep. those are important. Uh, tape measures. Obviously, if you need to uh, start determining things like the size of a particular uh, artifact area or maybe it's even a house or a wall again. These are things where, you know, you're going to take these measurements so that you can write all this stuff down as early as you possibly can. So you can you can start to form that image of what this site looked like originally, you know, hundreds or perhaps even thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. So uh, interesting little tidbit. I did not know until we started to research this podcast. It turns out there are two different styles of measuring depending upon the nature of the site you're looking at. If you're looking at a prehistoric site, you measure using the metric system. Because that's what science does. Yeah. yeah. A metric system is easy, right? I mean, it makes sense. Everything's in tens or hundreds. Easy to deal with. Here in America, that's not necessarily good <laughs> enough. Uh, you know, we don't like our, we don't like our measurements to be easy. No, that's ridiculous. Uh, that would be silly. Uh, so here's the thing. Anything that's of a historical time period, so prehistory versus history, historical time period stuff tends to be measured 
using English standard measure units like inches and feet, because that's what the people of the time were using when they were building their stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially here here in the West, I, yeah. I, I would imagine, and for most ranges of history. Yeah, yeah. Or certain ranges of history. Right. Yeah, in other parts of the world where the English measuring system would not have been introduced, then it's a little different. Of course, yeah. But yeah, if you're if you're researching, let's say you're researching a an ancient Roman establishment in 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 uh, Britain because the Romans had uh, had settled Britain, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you wanted to measure that then uh, you know, that might be one set of standards. And then let's say that you're looking at uh, maybe it's something from the Middle Ages in Britain. That would be a different set. So, you know, it all depends. But it's, it's interesting to me that in general, the prehistoric is in metric and the historic sites are in English standard. So, yeah, I didn't know that either. That's um complicated and fascinating. Yeah. I, may, I wonder if there are. I'm sure there are. I mean, there have to be archaeologists who specialize in in certain types. But it makes me wonder what their dinner parties are like. <laughs> um, There are other tools that are often used, things like calipers, obviously, to be able to pick things up without actually touching them yourself. Uh, but also there's a tool called a soil core, which is fairly unique to archaeology. I mean, you can use it in geology, too. Mm -hmm. But a soil core is essentially a imagine a metal tube. And what you do with this metal tube is you shove it into the ground and then you yank it back out again and it pulls out a soil sample. A core sample. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. And then you look at the stuff what you pulled out and you look to see if there's any evidence for artifacts, organic matter, that kind of thing that could indicate the presence of a human settlement or whatever. And if you find it, then that gives you an idea of, all right, well, this is definitely an area we need to look at when we're doing our excavation. If you're, you know, you might be doing a few, you would do lots of soil samples, obviously, but it might help you determine, all right, I think we're beyond the border now because none of these uh, core samples are coming back with anything. Or it may be that you're in a different area and you're thinking, oh, the settlement is actually larger than we first anticipated because we're actually finding quite a bit of stuff over here. It's just that everything is overgrown to the point where we never would have suspected it otherwise. Mm -hmm. So it's really cool stuff. So those are your basic hand tools, right? The stuff that that archaeologists have been using uh, in one form or another for decades. You know, some some of these, yeah, some of these are Yeah. yeah as old as as people going into tombs to rob them. But <laughs> so that kind of covers the basic hand tools, you know, the stuff that in some form or another has been around for like decades or hundreds of years. Hundred, in some yeah. Cases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you've been tomb robbing this whole time, you probably used a shovel at some point. And, and technically shovels and brushes are technology. Yeah, they are. I mean, we talk about how, you know, a lot of tech stuff is all about the higher tech things, but electrons flowing, all you know, of that. Mm-hmm. We, we do tend to like every now and then revisit stuff that's older technology. And while, you know, on the face of it, we might dismiss it as it's just a tool. At one time, that was a world-altering technology. Oh, so, yeah. I, I can imagine that for early farmers, shovels were pretty pretty big. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've got those basic tools out of the way. And before we move on, uh, let's just take a really quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, and we're back. So now we've talked about the basic tools. All right, Lauren, let me let me give you a little scenario. Sure. All right, let's say that I have joined an archaeological dig. Perhaps I've got one of those sort of ecotourism type things going on, or maybe I've taken a class or something, or 
I don't know, maybe my brain's been swapped with someone way smarter than I am. And I've gone out and I've done this archaeological dig and I found something and it looks really neat. How do I tell how old it is? Well, okay. historically, we relied on things like self-dating, you know, like like some items like coins will be stamped with a date. Yeah, which is that's handy. More or less reliable. As soon as assuming, you know what the indigenous people's dating system was. <laughs> yes. And assuming that you can read it clearly mm-hmm. and that uh, they weren't lying. Right. Right. Yeah. That could have been backdating their coins. I know. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> um, and, and also relative dating, which is extrapolating the date of unknown items from the known dates of self-dated items. Right. So in other words, you might be like uh, you might think along the lines of, well, this this settlement existed, as far as we can tell, 200 something years before this other one did. And we know the dates of this other one. So from that, we're going to extrapolate a lot of information. Uh, right. But that's also not always reliable because, I mean, because sediment patterns can change over mm-hmm. the years. Um, you know, looting and other explorations of the site could have moved stuff around mm-hmm. or left uh, more, more recent things with older things. And it really only works for for items about you know five thousand years back for for you know recorded history, right? Right. So if you're wanting to look at stuff all the way from the Stone Age, then that's not going to cut it. No. Um, however, around the 1800s or so, um, if if you were finding old stuff, you could start using things like a like clay varve counting. Clay varves being an annual layer of sedimentary rock that's created during uh, wet and dry seasons each year. Wow! So this is almost like a a geological version of tree rings, but it's just dependent upon those wet, dry seasons, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Exactly. I, I mean, you can also use tree rings. Oh, um, that's, well, there you go. That's another <laughs> thing you could do. That's dendrochronology. Um, and that's, you, you, you can use it to date pieces of wood pretty specifically. I did do, I did date a few pieces of wood in my college yeah? days. Yeah. Me too. It was a, yeah, you know, eventually you find the personalities out there. So stick with it, people. We, good luck. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this, this entire section, by the way, is titled How Dating Works. Um, which cracked me up, and, but I'm sparing you the majority of the jokes that I made. I'll wait for it. Yeah. So all, all of these kind of, kind of geological sort of things helped us determine, um, lots of prehistorical artifacts timelines. Sure. But it wasn't until, it, it, we, we didn't get any kind of specificity about stuff like this until the 1940s. Um, that's when one Willard Libby developed the carbon dating process. All right. And I, I know a little bit about carbon dating. I understand that it actually requires that you compare two different types of carbon against each other. And the differences between those two give you an indication of how old something is. Is that right? That is exactly how it works. Yes. Um, specifically, okay, so so there's a radioactive isotope of carbon called carbon-14. Mm-hmm. It has a half-life of about 5,700 years, and it's really plentiful around Earth. Okay. Um, living things absorb it. Uh, plants take it in as, as part of carbon dioxide. Other living things eat plants, right. circle of life, so yes. on and so forth. Yeah, you got some um, up on the hill. <laughs> Exactly. All right. But so you've got this radioactive isotope and then you've got um, the stable normal carbon, which is carbon-12. Okay. So um, two different types of carbon. You have carbon-14 and carbon-12. Right. And the ratio of these two in the air and in living things is pretty much constant, even though the 14 keeps decaying into carbon-12. Okay. So if that ratio is constant, then that suggests to me that, in fact, these living things are 
getting new sources of carbon-14, because otherwise the ratio would get out of whack after a while, right? Uh, right. Well, uh, we, we get carbon-14 because of cosmic rays hitting particles in the atmosphere and and creating it and stuff and things. Okay. Um, so, But so we breathe it in constantly. Uh, it's in our bodies, and it decays slowly over time into carbon-12. Gotcha. Okay. So as long as we're alive... We keep getting carbon-14. Correct. And we maintain that ratio. But, but after we die, aha. we stop taking in carbon-14. So therefore, if you compare the amount of carbon-14 to carbon-12 in an artifact, in an organic artifact anyway, right. you can get a pretty good idea of how old it is. I see. So because you know that carbon-14 decays over time into carbon-12. In a steady and constant rate. And you know what the ratio is in general between carbon-12 and carbon-14 for a living object, by checking that new ratio, you can kind of extrapolate how old or at least how long this thing has been dead. Uh, more or less, yeah. It's it's not a really... I mean, it's more precise than previous methods were. But it's still giving you a range. It's still obviously. giving you a range, and there are some downfalls. Um, for example, like we kind of mentioned earlier, um, if you touch organic material um, to the object in question, you know, like, like your hand being organic material, um, then yeah. you can contaminate that sample. So in other words, you could get a false reading from it because you've actually some of your carbon may have actually uh, corrupted it. Right. Now, what I think, uh, one of the things I think is interesting here is how, once again, anyone anyone listening to this podcast who has watched any kind of movies that are about uh, not just archaeology, but anytime you're having characters who are digging up an old site or something, carbon dating was like the 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 blanket statement to find out how old anything was, whether it was organic or not. Right. I'm thinking specifically of there was some horrible science fiction film. It was one of the ones that MST3K riffed on uh-huh. where their solution to figuring out how old this clearly non-organic thing was, was through <laughs> carbon dating. And I thought, I don't think that works the way you think it works. Uh, maybe spaceships are made from Carbon people? in, I don't, yeah, from people. Well, I mean, the TARDIS, the TARDIS is alive, so that's something. True. Um, <laughs> and, and also, I mean, okay, so, so you can't really do it with, with very small samples, although improved techniques are helping to change that. Um, and the data can be a little bit off for, for newer samples. Okay. Um, and they can also be off for anything over 50,000 years old because um, the too much of the carbon has degraded to really... So to get an accurate idea. Yeah, so, yeah it's so in just other words, basically more than 50,000 years old. Right, so anything that's younger than 50,000 years old, but not so young as to have happened like within the recent past. Sure. So that's what it's good for. So let me ask you this. Uh, you know, Large samples, obviously something that you need to do. I imagine that this also requires that uh, you have to move stuff because I, I don't I can't imagine there being like a carbon dating kit that you drag out with you to the archaeological site that you just pick up an artifact and you scan it and everything's cool. Another thing you have to watch out for, um, there have been periodic fluctuations in the ratio of carbon 12 to carbon 14 over the millennia. Ah, um, OK. And and we're gathering more data about that all the time. Um, but. You know, it's it's something that has to be taken into consideration. Right. So that could mean that something that you had previously or at least you thought you had previous previously established to a particular time might 
in fact be from a different time because of one of those fluctuations. Be nudged earlier or later. Yeah, sure. sure. Okay. Um, uh, Robert and Julie over at Stuff to Blow Your Mind did a whole episode on this back in April, uh, April 27th, 2010, to be precise, uh, called How Old Is That Artifact in the Window? Um, and it talks a little bit more about the process if you're if you're curious to learn more and also about some of the controversies that have come up with specific artifacts due to all of these kind of weird uh, behaviors. Exceptions to the rule type mm-hmm. thing. Absolutely. Mm. Now, I understand there are some other techniques that are similar to carbon dating, but they're not using carbon, which would allow archaeologists to actually date non-organic stuff like rocks and minerals. Uh, right. Or spaceships. Um. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because clearly Indiana Jones 4 taught us. Oh, no. Uh, oh, let's dear. Let's not talk about that. Um, yeah. No. Uh, other radioactive isotopes can be used for basically the same job. Like a uh, potassium 40 is pretty good. Uh, you can you can compare the the argon in minerals and rocks to to the amount of potassium 40. And that will give you a similar effect. And that chronology can can date things back to like two million years. Cool. So so that's how we've done done a lot of um, paleo archaeology. Right. Yeah. Because paleontology and archaeology are similar disciplines, but not exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, OK, so that makes sense. All right. So um, um, unfortunately, the, the, oh. the, thi- the thing about all of this, all of this. Always got to bring me down. Carb- I know. Right. Science. Oh, bringing us down. Unfortunately, uh, all of these methods have been basically screwed over forever by the fact that we have nuclear weapons and reactors. Oh, right. I guess those could kind of influence the amounts of radiation that you would find in any given given sample. And, you know, so I'm sure that future, you know, aliens or human populations or whatever could find a way around it. They're probably going to be pretty clever. But right, yeah. They'll have a holodeck and they'll, the person will just appear and say, oh yeah, I was around it this time. But until then, man, science <laughs> shucks. It's always bringing us down. Now, I got to ask you about this because I see it in the notes. I don't know what this is. It's um, thermoluminescence. So if I have to guess, I would say it's got something to do with heat and light. That is entirely correct. All right. So basically, some pottery includes crystalline materials like quartz um, that, when heated, release electrons that were trapped in defects in the crystal structure. And that means that uh, during the initial firing of a piece of pottery, um, it kind of sets this quartz clock to zero. Okay. Um, because the the electrons got into those defects in, in the crystal's through um through cosmic rays through the absorption of electromagnetic radiation wow or or through the 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 effects that probably the piezoelectric effects okay right, of right, right. electromagnetic magnetic radiation on the crystals we'll have a lot more to say about piezoelectric effects in part 2 of this show we will yeah um and also in another episode that we're recording today yes that's right we're it's we're all about the piezoelectric effect up here they're everywhere so so over the years defects absorb electrons at a pretty constant rate. And so if you find a bit of pottery that has that has previously been fired in the ground, dig it up and reheat it and then measure the amount of electrons that you get off of it, you can date kind of sort of where like like how long it has existed since it's been originally fired. That's pretty incredible. I mean, it's you know, it's an interesting, very novel approach to trying to go around finding how old something is. Uh, and this is just an example of the ingenuity that people have applied to this discipline to be able to learn more about where we come from and 
the ancestors that came before us who didn't leave any written records. And, you know, how do we know more about them? This is exactly how we have to go about it, which is why I find it so fascinating. Anytime you, you're talking about unraveling a mystery, obviously that, that arouses curiosity, right? So not a big surprise that we had a bunch of pulp action heroes kind of come out of this, including the beloved Indiana Jones. Let's not, let's not even, you know, acknowledge the fourth movie. Yeah, no, no. Sh- Shia LaBeouf was never a part, never oh, a part no. of Indiana Jones. <laughs> oh, bad dates. All right. So um, uh, anyway, that wraps up our first episode about archaeology. But we're going to do another episode where we're talking about some of the newer technology that's being used in the field and how it's really making this a, a, a truly exciting discipline for the 21st century. Not that it wasn't exciting before, but now we're actually going to have chances to, at least in a virtual way, see what these places look like. It's exciting in a much nerdier way. Which is why I get all excited at the end of the episode. So guys, if you have any suggestions for future topics that we can cover here on Tech Stuff, I recommend you let us know. How do you do that, you ask? Well, here's a way. Send us an email. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com. Or if you are a social media guru, then you can jump onto Facebook or Twitter. And hey, what's that blogging thing that all the kids are doing now? Tumblr. Tumblr. And find us at techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 